And I came to understand that we're doing a really good job in terms of, you know, inspiring inventors and innovators, but they are all facing tremendous challenges when they get out into the, into the market to try to bring those ideas to patients. And as I've learned from that previous experience, getting involved in policy is, is sort of how you address those types of issues. The Medical Alley podcast is brought to you by MentorMate. MentorMate empowers healthcare clients to deliver on their mission and transform the human experience through technology. For over 20 years, clients have trusted MentorMate to guide their vision, design innovative products, and build secure solutions while understanding the specific nuances of their industry. MentorMate's global team in the U.S., Eastern Europe, and Latin America helps clients in all sectors of healthcare transform their organizations. From Fortune 500 pharmaceutical companies and commercial payers to hospital systems, medical device manufacturers, and beyond. Learn more at mentormate.com healthcare. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to everyone out there in Medical Alley. This is your host, Frank Chiscalti, here with another episode of the Medical Alley podcast. And I'm really excited for today's episode. Uh, We're going to have a discussion with a gentleman that I think many of you will know or be aware of at least. And probably many of you will remember some conversations and some presentations a number of years ago on a perfect storm that had been hitting the medical device industry. I'm excited to be joined today by Dr. Josh Mackauer, who is a professor of medicine and bioengineering at Stanford and the director and co-founder of the Stanford Byers Center for Biodesign. Uh, Dr. Mackauer, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah. Maybe the the first place I want to talk about is revisiting a little bit of the, the perfect storm discussion that had gone on. I mean, it's got to have been a decade plus ago now. Yeah. That's right. Where so many different forces were coming together and kind of slowing down or squashing med tech innovation. You'd put out a call to action. We rallied as an industry to respond to it. And I, I'd be curious just to reflect, did we make it out of the storm? How do you how do you feel looking like 10 years later? Did we respond? Did it make a difference? Absolutely made a difference. It actually convinced me that these types of changes are possible and helped me understand the means by which to make those changes. Um, Obviously it takes a community like uh, the medical device industry as a whole coming together, both big and small companies, the venture capital community, the investor community, the patient advocacy groups, et cetera, to come together. But I mean, anyone who's still working in medical technology today can look back at where we were, what the issues that we were facing at that time, and really say confidently that many of those issues have been addressed and in a very positive way. Indeed, yeah. When, and you mentioned yeah, finding kind of the the levers or the ways that you you can make change. Can you talk about what were those things that you came across, and does that relate in any way to the work? now being done, and I want to ask about this in a bit, but in creating the policy fellowships. Absolutely. It's fundamental to it, and it was the inspiration for it. 
I think, you know, just going back a bit, I have no um, political aspirations and had never been involved <laughs> in anything in Washington before. And at the time that I, you know, created that slide deck and spoke at a number of meetings and venues about the perfect storm and the issues that were happening with FDA, um, I really viewed it as an opportunity provided by what had happened with me and Clarent and wanted to give back to the industry and um, felt like this was an opportunity to do so. Um, many people felt that to speak out about the FDA and what was happening was a high-risk high move. And maybe, um, I believe maybe that was partially true, but I felt like the impact that the changes in regulation at FDA were having on our ability to improve patient care was so fundamentally disturbing that it needed to be acted on. And one of the key insights on how to unlock all of that was, number one, coming together with a unified voice across all of the stakeholders, as I mentioned. The other piece was to develop data that could be usable to help inform policymakers on what was really happening. Um, What was made clear to me by a few policymakers, most notably Anna Eshoo, who still remains one of the leaders of the caucus in Washington, was that she's continually barraged with people with opinions um, on either side of any issue. Don't do this, do this. You know, this is bad, this is good. I mean, all the time. And she's constantly frustrated because, of course, she feels for people on both sides of an issue. But what she really wants to react to is data. She feels that in many policymakers like some data source to point to to help guide their way. Otherwise, it's just opinions and opinions can be manipulative and sometimes very wrong. And so um, the call to action for all of us was come back with data. You know, show me what's really going on. Prove to me that this is really an issue. And that's what prompted me and a few colleagues to go study it and understand what the impact of the delays are, how expensive it is, what impact it's having on the progression of innovation, what types of innovations were being impacted, um, and go back with that data to help tell the story. And that became the fundamental asset that wound up getting deployed in all of the conversations in Congress and with FDA and the White House that wound up sort of being the foundation of how they formed the legislation that ultimately came into play. Indeed. And, you know, for our listeners who maybe weren't around at this time and don't, don't have the context, at this time, there were innovative companies going to FDA with their submissions and it would kind of grind to a halt. Right. And they'd be asked to do new clinical trials, new endpoints, new designs over and over. And we saw it here in Minnesota with a number of companies that just ran out of money, right. not because the product didn't work, but because they, they couldn't get through that last set of hurdles that kept changing. Exactly. Right. And I think I say, I come out of the policy world originally the maturation of the device industry in the last 10 years to understand what you just said of bringing evidence to these discussions, advocating as an industry, not as individual companies, 
I think it's been transformative on a, a number of fronts. But I think much like you, most of the people in the industry, they're, they're not policymakers by training or by practice. So could you talk a little bit about the policy fellowships that are that you that are now in development or in execution. What what is that? Yeah. So I I co-founded Stanford Biodesign about twenty three years ago with uh, Dr. Paul Yock, um, fundamentally to train people on innovation and innovation processes that could, they could use to allow them to be more successful in treating patient mm-hmm. needs. And we've trained you know thousands of people. Um, the methodology across the world. Um, we created a textbook and other assets that are really in train, you know, major multinationals on yeah. this. And, um, and so we've gotten very far on that training of innovators. But as you look at, you know, and I've done this as a sort of an adjunct uh, consulting professor since it started. And in 2021 was invited back in well, as Paul was retiring to step in to lead biodesign as a, you know, sort of full-time role as a professor here. And when I did, the deans were like, well, what are you going to do that's new? You know, where, where are the needs for innovation going forward? Is biodesign, is this, you know, sort of just do more of the same or is there something new to do? And I did a, you know, sort of a listening tour around um, all of our graduates and, and those that are involved with the program. And I, came to understand that we're doing a really good job in terms of, you know, inspiring inventors and innovators, but they are all facing tremendous challenges when they get out into the, into the market to try to bring those ideas to patients. And as I've learned from that previous experience, policy, getting involved in policy is, is sort of how you address those types of issues. And so the idea of taking some ownership of that here at Biodesign, being a neutral third party, um, you know, academic location, not a vested financial interest in any one uh, technology, but more of a independent source of, you know, perspective might be able to be a very useful uh, framework to be able to do the kind of research that we did back in 2000, whatever it was, (laughs) uh, when we were dealing with FDA reform and look at other reforms that are needed to help you know, accelerate and advance um, important medical technologies for patients in support of innovators who wish to do so and, and to represent innovators in a sense uh, in that communication because there really is no other university um, policy program that has an orientation towards innovation in the way right. that design does. And so the idea, you know, as we start to form, like, well, what, what does this look like? Obviously, we have experience with the innovation policy, with the innovation fellowship as being a way of really training the next generation of innovators. Um, we thought maybe we should create an innovation policy uh, fellowship and train the next generation of policymakers who would be addressing innovation. And so that's where the idea came from. It's really modeled after the innovation fellowship, but to create a policy fellowship to tr- train policymakers who would be exposed to innovation, understand the innovation process, and become deeply familiar with what the issues are so that if we can deploy them into Washington, they could potentially make a difference there. Oh, I love that. Uh, I came out of a a policy program here in Minnesota that is kind of like the, the MBA of policy in the sense of the strategy and execution of policy on a state level in this case 
And the, the gentleman who started that, his vision was over the years, graduate people who would go on into roles in government and in policymaking, who'd have this kind of fundamental set of values and relationships. And that would over time reshape the direction of Minnesota policy and politics in a positive way. And this is now been going on for about 15 years. It's to the point where the graduates are having that effect all over. When I think of what the the Innovation Fellowship has done and spread worldwide, mm. uh, that, that makes me personally, as part of this community, very excited to see how this might impact policymaking for innovation in the U.S. and maybe even eventually beyond. Yeah. For those that are getting involved or for those who might be interested, like what's some of the kind of nuts and bolts of it, like, Who's coming into it or who should come into it and what do they do? Yeah, I would say if you are someone who has an interest in playing an active role, sort of as a career in becoming a policymaker associated with, um, you know, sort of medical innovation or improving healthcare, um, these are usually folks who've gone to get a master's of public health degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe they've already served as a sort of an intern in a government role and kind of become inspired there. Um, ideally, have uh, some form of science or clinical background. Maybe they yeah. are MDs. Maybe they've they they've got exposure as an engineer or in a startup or something like that. But they see a calling um, to do this type of work and to play a government um, or affiliated uh, agency role. Uh, and maybe they're even in an agency now, you know, I would expect yeah. people even from who are currently serving at the FDA or even CMS and other places might have an interest in this. Um, and we'd be very happy to help, happy to take in folks that are even currently in those positions, but they're looking at it as a way to sort of get a broader experience and then step back in perhaps at a higher level. So uh, that's sort of who it's really focused on. It is, you know, initially we weren't sure what the scope of it was going to be. I think now we're focused on U.S. only, as we've come to realize that the U.S. has its own and very complex set of very challenging problems that need to be solved. Most, you know, I think reimbursement at the front of those Indeed. Uh, issues. And it's so unique country to country. What we'd like to do with respect to participating with our international partners here is sort of form a framework that they can use to create their own policy programs. I think it would be really hard for us to map our educational content over, you know, what's happening in Germany, you know, what's happening in in Japan. Um, it's just so many complicated and unique issues in those geographies that I think we sort of would be happy to be a good model and a partner there, but hard for us to, you know, reasonably say, you know, hey, come to Stanford in California in the right. United States and have us teach you about how policy should be done in your own country. I think that's probably an overreach. Fair enough. And I, I gotta say, I've always appreciated uh, for the biodesign program that you all have had kind of this principle of like spread the idea give the framework, help build it out. It's not been something that, you know, you and Paul and others like held close to vest and only kept there. Yeah. No, I mean, there's so many big medical problems to be solved and obviously so many policy programs, policy issues to be solved internationally outside of, you know, even on the broader framework. And I think, you know, participating internationally on international issues, we'd love to do that as well. It's, It's more about 
you know, starting with starting small, starting focus. I think very much like, uh, as you know, in a startup, you know, best thing is to focus, build a baseline of success. And then, you know, we can expand from there and maybe someday it would be a broader, a broader reach, but it's big enough reach alone, just dealing with all the array of potential policy issues that are, that innovators are facing in, in healthcare mm-hmm. and technology uh, alone in the United States right now. So that's where our focus is going to be. Want to get your company's message in front of hundreds of healthcare professionals? Consider a sponsorship or advertising opportunity through Medical Alley. Sponsorships are still available for our upcoming Alley Chats networking event, as well as our Equity in the Alley Women to Watch, featuring Kate Stewart of Stryker. And your message could even be heard right here on the Medical Alley podcast. To learn more about available opportunities, go to medicalalley.org prospectus, or reach out to anyone on the Medical Alley team. Well, and you mentioned the the payment side, which in some ways feels like that has emerged as the like the successor to the regulatory yeah. challenges. That's What's correct. your take on you know why we as a medical technology industry have had such a challenge navigating the the payment world? I think uh, the payment world is very complicated by the fact that it isn't just one entity. One of the, you know, looking back, one of the advantages we had with uh, FDA reform was FDA was a government agency. There Mm -hmm. weren't multiple FDAs, some of them, some of them private organizations focused on profit. Um, We had the ability to lever Congress and White House uh, and, you know, the people who are paying for agencies to do their jobs. Uh, to leverage all those resources to sort of make change. And it was a single entity that, you know, needed to change. In this case, it's a very complicated system. You know, CMS is just one piece of it. Um, And the other uh, elements of the private insurers, are they're their own animals. I mean, they don't have to do anything. They're privately owned. Uh, You know, they're privately um, controlled. They have a profit motive. You know, they're a business, they can do what they want. Um, so they don't necessarily need to respond to the needs of the population. I mean, they're, they're businesses in a sense. And so they, they need to do what they need to do to maximize their shareholders' returns. Mm-hmm. And that's what they do, um, as, as would any business for that matter. So I think that's, what, that's one of the elements that makes it complicated. Further complicated by the fact that those same private entities through, you know, an affiliated and controlled uh, not-for-profit entity controls how Medicare is actually being dispersed as well. <laughs> and so the and Medicaid. So that's also somewhat of a complication um, that is an interesting element here is that uh, CMS seems to be, you know, obviously advisory, but at the end of the day, the execution of these programs is not direct. It's through um, right. third parties, you know, so there's it's further complicated by that. That all being said, however, CMS does lead the way in generalized frameworks, and there yep. is some amount of pressure because, in a sense, many of those private um, entities, even though they may have a not-for-profit, uh, you know, sub-entity that that is associated with dispersing Medicare, Medicaid, has to sort of listen to their customer. Uh, that being CMS, and therefore. You know, CMS has to listen to their customer, that being the American public, and their their healthcare needs, uh, you know, sort of managed by Congress and the White House. So I think 
you know, it's that leverage through the conversations with CMS that we see an opportunity to make change more more globally across the reimbursement framework that would be more conducive and supportive of innovation and hopefully overall lowering of healthcare costs and, and improving outcomes for, for patients. Yeah, well said. The, the complexity certainly is there, the size of the activities. I think when, when I meet with some of our medical device members and we have, you know, our friends at United Health Group in our backyard here, I think they are almost to a T, 100% of them are surprised that United Health Group is larger in terms of revenue and employment than the entire U.S. medical device industry. Right. And that like in this year alone, United's growth goal is to add a Medtronic plus a Boston Scientific, and then a teeny bit more on top of that. Yeah. The, the scale and scope is next level. Yes. It's, yeah. yeah, it's amazing. Uh, last thing I want to ask you as we, we wrap up here, you know, the, the role of information technology has always been there in healthcare, but certainly in the last 10 years has taken a, a more elevated role. And we're seeing an increasing number of medical device companies that are playing in the so-called digital or health IT space, health IT companies interacting with the digital space. As, as you think about innovation, about new inventors and innovators coming out, how has the role of IT changed or maybe not changed uh, the way the biodesign program approaches innovation? I mean, <laughs> it's uh, going to go through an exponential uh, change with this advent of and rapid acceleration of artificial intelligence and sort of suddenly becoming real. Right. I think everybody's aware that that is um, sort of at the front of everyone's minds. Could be amazing and incredibly beneficial and also could be exceptionally dangerous. <laughs> so, you know, I think... Uh, this is something we in the policy program will be taking a look at and trying to yeah. frame out how to regulate and or, you know, inspire innovation around artificial intelligence and its appropriate uses for healthcare. I have always believed that there's there could be tremendous savings if we would allow machines well-programmed and well-tested to manage most of the relatively routine things that happen between physicians and patients mm. in that exchange. I mean, you know, if that could be the first point of call when you have an issue uh, before it gets elevated to a human would be amazing. I mean, if, it, if for the vast majority of very simple issues that could be treated with the pharmaceutical that is not dangerous, right. uh, could be handled with an AI bot that would be available 24-7 on your phone, we would love that. And as long as it wasn't dangerous, it could be great. Um, and in fact, physicians would probably even prefer that happen because a lot of those things are fairly mundane. They don't require a lot of thinking and they're time consuming and, and et cetera. So if we could offload that to a machine, that'd be great. What we don't want to offload is the very important and dangerous things that might be decisions that need to be made. And that's, that's sort of the next, the, how do you, how do you stratify that? So I think there's great opportunity for healthcare cost savings and better outcomes for patients. 
and also addressing really a lot of health equity issues to the extent that people have access to a cell phone. Um, if, if, if people have a cell phone, and that could mean that they thereby have health care, which would be amazing, wow. um, as long as that health care is correct. <laughs> right. I mean, it sounds very much like the challenges we've we've routinely faced in the field of the the technology advances faster than the policymakers or regulators can, which is probably in and of itself an unsolvable problem, but the one we are tasked with addressing. Well, good. Well, thank you. Yeah, that was fantastic. I appreciate you sharing your perspective and being on our podcast today. Thanks for inviting me and. Um... Um, you know, thanks for everything you're doing to advance uh, innovation and, uh, and improve the lives of patients. So thank you. Indeed. And folks, that's been another episode of the Medical Alley podcast. If you're not already a subscriber, make sure you check out medicalalleypodcast.org, or you can find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. And hey, would you do me one little favor? Would you share this episode with just one person? If everyone listening did that, you'd help spread this story and the story of so many other great innovators that are out there with a broader community. I'd really appreciate it. Until next time, have a great day.